0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Family Jewels True Crime Podcast. My name is Brian Sobolewski. I am your host, walking you through the five-year period that my father, brother, and I rob jewelry stores all over New England. Today is episode 15, Jacob 2. Got a lot of content for you today. I have multiple calls, multiple segments of calls that I'm going to play for you of me and my dad talking about both the Jacob 1 robbery and the Jacob 2 robbery. I have taken a video that I had on my phone of me talking to my grandmother way later in life. This is probably a year or two before she actually passed away at 102. And I'm just having some fun with her. So um, I'm going to play that audio for you later in the episode. I have a couple of other calls of dad talking about Chelsea and growing up and, and some of his extended family like my aunts, Auntie Sabina and Auntie Ollie. Um, Both were uh, sisters of the grandmother that I'm going to play for you. And so before we get into any of that stuff, let's talk Jacob 1, because before we talk about the second robbery of Jacob, it's it's important to go over the details of Jacob 1 and also go over some of the things that um, were revelations to me during some of these conversations. And the first revelation is that um, dad did a robbery by himself that failed prior to us doing grabbing a case, which is the first episode of this podcast. Um, that's the first Jacob robbery. I didn't know that that robbery, I thought that was randomly placed say in the middle so we started this in 1990 i thought dad did that in like 1993 when i heard and both my brother and i heard this when we were doing the discovery parts of our trials that dad had done two robberies by himself one of those robberies you're going to hear about in this call that was prior to jacob one the grabbing the case and i didn't know that's where it fell on the timeline i'd never thought to ask i don't know if that i don't know if other people would have asked that when i heard it I think I might have asked my dad about it in a conversation that I had with him the first time we met in the yard in prison. And uh, that that's a later episode, but um, I, I don't remember the answers to those questions being as detailed as as you're going to hear in this call. So, a lot of stuff here. It's almost prompting me to almost want to go back and redo the grabbing a case episode because I, I put parts of the call you're going to hear in the first episode I went and put them back in because they were details of that that I had covered in the podcast part but I just tagged those calls to the end of that episode because that's where they belong so more and more details are coming out the more I do these calls with my dad that's why I'm doing them and that's why I'm playing them for you so you get this other side of the spectrum and you and I know Judged by some of the feedback that I've gotten, some from some friends, that um, you know, you guys have your opinions about him, you have your opinions about us, and I love it. That that's that is why, and part of the reason why I did this. So let me just quickly go over what you're about to hear, because they basically cover the details of the first Jacob robbery, which was Dad's second, our first. Now, Dad talks about this guy, Bruce, that he met in prison. And it's just a little bit of rapping about. And, and why I left this in here, it's not really pertinent to today's episode. But at the same time, Dad starts talking about this guy, Bruce. Dad met him in prison. And and Dad is, was just always about connections, connections, connections. He's He always seemed to find that one person that could get him things that other people couldn't. You know, almost like the Morgan Freeman character in Shawshank. That's I want you to think of my dad slick like that cuz that's how he talks about prison. He talks about, "Eh, hey, you know, I smuggled this guy a couple of cookies and they just they start talking Now, listen, let me tell you something." Cookies in prison and my dad says that he says it that they're like a $100 bill. You are sitting in prison, you're sitting in Concord State Prison facing whatever it is you're facing and multiple whatever amount of time it was and I don't care if it was 3 years or it was a 100 years, every second you spend in there is despair and someone offers you a cookie <laughs> I would pay a $1,000 for an Oreo in prison when, you know, eat that food for a week so dad instantly gets into Concord State Prison, instantly gets into culinary and instantly starts eating like a king so he does not know this pain that, that is my dad in a nutshell. And that's why I left this in here because I think it's important for you to hear how this guy that he met because he gave him a cookie in prison got him out of prison when the judge, Judge Houston that sentenced all of us that, that ended up seeing this whole case through decided that a paperwork glitch was valid enough to keep my dad in for another 18 months. So my dad's preparing to get himself out the year he was preparing to get out Judge Houston, a, my dad gets his paperwork from prison. And when you look at the release date, let's just say there's a glitch. Let's just say somebody, you know, sneezed and hit a nine instead of a zero. Now you're doing another nine months. That happened with my dad. It was, wasn't, he was supposed to get out. He had original paperwork that said he was supposed to get on this date. And then poof. No, you got another 18 months to do. Sit back, shut up. So dad talks about how cookie man, the cookie monster, Bruce, who was in there for robbing lawyers, got him out on time and how he did it. And and it's just great. You could do a movie just on this prick. Now, my dad talks about the reason we went after Jacob. I asked him why he was a good target. Um, And my dad talks about the fact that if we had robbed Jacob a day early, The night before the robbery, Jacob had 50K on him. Along with all the diamonds that I talk about in the episode one, um, he also had 50K. The day we robbed him, no 50K. Dad talks about that. I didn't know that. Dad says it would have changed everything, and I'm not sure I believe that for a second. He says he wouldn't have done as many robberies if we had that 50K don't believe it. Think we would have gone on. I think we would have done everything that we did. I do not think fifty thousand in cash. Do you know why I don't believe it? Because we never made an investment or a step towards anything to do with that money. We never tried to make it. I don't you didn't have to clean it necessarily like you would if it was drug money or anything else. But at the same time, there was no plan other than accumulation. So I don't believe that, to be honest with you. And dad talks, this is some amazing quotes that I I had to go back and put in the first episode of, you know, after he, what's amazing to me about dad doing this first robbery prior to us doing Jacob one is that he had already made the decision that he was going to rob. He already made that decision. Maybe he made that decision when he was in Chelsea as a kid. I made that decision when he asked me to help him. I know when I made that decision. I'm not entirely sure when he did. And I know it was prior to us doing that first robbery with him. But, but the way he makes it sound, and I needed some muscle, who else am I going to trust but my kids? You're going to hear these words come out of his mouth. And they're, they're not vindicating for me. They're, they, they acknowledge a thought process. And that's what I'm trying to understand, is his thought process throughout all of this. Who else do I trust but my kids, he says. And then, you know, you see a little bit of misogynism in my dad here. He talks about that first robbery that he did by himself without his children. And how after he maced a guy, he screams like a girl. And I, I don't know. This is the stuff that I don't particularly like hearing from my dad. I don't like hearing that. I, I just, I don't acknowledge it. Certainly not going to tell him he can't talk that way. That's his business. But just know I don't like it. And then he just ends with, you know, very poignantly saying, timing is everything, especially in robberies. Well, yeah, yeah, the coolness. So I'm going to play that stuff for you. I'm also going to play a little bit of a call where dad talks about a plan that was in effect to rob a store in Rockport, Mass. And right away, I can tell you why it was a terrible idea. I say it to him. He chats a little bit about that. So I'm going to play all of that stuff for you. And then from there, we'll go into Jacob 2. Because Jacob 2 was brilliant, a brilliant setup. I don't know if robbing a person twice points to our cockiness or Jacob's carelessness. And that's the decision that you can make on your own after you hear the Jacob 2. So let me play and let's go over the Jacob 1 robbery. I'll come back and we'll, uh, we'll talk Jacob 2 right back guys i got a call from bruce he's working
1: on one and a half years of his endeavors he's going to print it out and send it to me and then he may call you and i'll forward the information to you to see how it reads okay i mean
2: depending on that information there will be specific questions my first question is how did how did he know how much to write a check for was there a a certain amount was there like did he know was there a
1: cap or how that's a damn good question i never thought of that one brian yeah so just stuff like that that's good um i'll tell you he he was this guy like he was the one that got me out of jail remember
2: yeah yeah because because uh houston wanted to keep you in what another 18 months
1: yeah and he called the clerk of courts twice First time he told him it was a reporter, second time he told him he was with a TV station in New York, and information has come to him that uh, this judge is leaving prisoners in prison longer than their sentence really warrant. And he'd like to do a story on that. He's coming up with his camera crew. Like I said, they had to have uh, my release papers on the asbestos. That's how fast they got them down there. The friction would have started them on fire.
2: Yeah. I couldn't amazing.
1: wait to get me the hell out of there.
2: He sounds like quite a character, man. He is.
1: He really is. Nice and guy. you met him in prison? Yeah. What happened was he asked somebody uh, about working out, and someone pointed to Kevin and I, and he started working out with us. And yeah. then he has a propensity for cookies, and I used to smuggle a couple of cookies out of the culinary stand.
2: <laughs> Currency. What's that? Cookies were currency. I'll say they're a hundred
1: dollar bill in prison.
2: Let me ask you a couple questions about the first Jacob. Okay. Why did Why did we go after him?
1: He made a pitch to me to invest some money to buy more diamonds so he can sell them uh, more competitively and to split the profits. After the holidays, I approached him. He didn't know who I was. And how much did you invest? 15. 15K? Yeah. Cash? Yeah. Of course.
2: Okay. And, and then, then he, he said, No, I don't know you.
1: Yeah, basically. Yeah, he says, I don't remember doing that. I don't remember telling you anything. I don't remember getting any money. So I, well, I mean he did, he did that to Bill, too, right? Yeah, he did that to Bill, but on a much smaller scale. Uh, and uh, Bill and I decided that he was going to. Pay daily for it, which he did twice.
2: I know. So don't go into the second one yet, because I want to do a separate call on
1: that. But uh, so we missed the, if we had hit him the night before, which we couldn't. I, I think the weather was ridiculous for you guys to stay out there in the middle of the night, or was it just Kevin? I don't remember. Anyway, uh, he had fifty thousand in cash in his briefcase
2: the night before. Yeah. Wow. I mean, the the hall was bad anyway. No. No. <laughs> but that fifty k would have been nice.
1: Well, that would have changed everything. I wouldn't have done as many then. That fifty thousand no. would have set us up, and we still would have, we wouldn't have gone through the bullshit we had to in jail.
2: So, I think Kev hid behind there that first night, and then you guys came home. And what made you ask Kev? Was, was that the original plan?
1: I I uh, tried something on my own that didn't go well. What did you try on your own? I hit a, a, a gold dealer in one of the small shopping centers in Nashua. And uh, when he fell, I hit him with a mace. And when he fell, he fell on the back. I couldn't get him off of it, so I just went home. So I said, this, this isn't working. I need some muscle.
0: Cool. And
1: I said, who the hell do you trust? Yeah. I trust my kids. Yeah. I trust them with my life. So that was how that whole started. I asked Kevin. I told him the whole story. And then he talked to you, and the rest is history.
2: Yeah. Yeah, right? Amazing. So uh, who was the first gold guy? Do you remember the first gold guy? No, I don't remember
1: his name. uh, Was that set up by Bill? Say that again? Was that set up by Bill? Yeah, that was set up by Bill. And uh, he screamed like a little girl when I hit him with the mace. I almost laughed my ass off. I mean, like a little girl. And he oh. fell in the bag like he was covering it
2: up and holding it no, up. Was, like, no, it
1: was no. no, that was just a coincidence that he fell in the bag. But he was still conscious when he fell in the bag. Oh, of course he was. That, that thing doesn't make you unconscious. just makes your eyes water. Yeah, right. Funny When you ask the questions, it kicks open enough to the memory and the details are in the memory. One that, thing, that's why I'm Billy, a kick-ass host. Billy wanted me to check out a place in Rockport. So I did. And I almost spit slapped him when I got back. Why? Cuz Rockport's
2: right. impossible to get in and out of.
1: It is one fucking road, Brian. I mean Right. Yeah, you you, could that, do road road I like might... two bicycles in a in a wastepaper basket.
2: Yeah. You'd be uh, busted um, unless you hit the water, but even then I don't I don't think.
1: I just what's the matter with you? <laughs>
2: <laughs> that guy was crazy, man. I think you're crazier than us. Uh
1: no, I think he got hooked up into having a lot of free money. Yeah, I think he, we all
2: did. Uh, I think we all did. I mean, you busted your ass for 19 hours a day and made you, – you did really, really well. But, I mean, Jacob probably made what you made in a lifetime.
1: Could be. We, right. Now, one thing, after the second – I'll save this for the second. He actually got out of the business, and the last word was he was selling souvenirs to tourists in Tel Aviv.
2: Yeah,
1: not right now. He's
2: not, man. Israel's a mess.
1: You well, know, as you said, he dead by now. I mean, the guy was severely overweight. He didn't take care of himself.
2: I couldn't point that dude out in the lineup. I
1: could. I only I saw see. his
2: face moving side to side as Kev was punching him. So you, you know, know I...
1: you know how they say revenge is really sweet. I remember the uh, first uh, batch of diamonds lost and sold came in. And dropped six thousand dollars in hundred dollar bills on my counter, and all my animosity toward Jacob disappeared. It was absolutely <laughs> amazing. <laughs> I love yeah, that. I'll do that to you, man. I love it. I'll tell you, uh, my, everything. I just felt so good. I finally. I thought I had done the right thing right then and there. I says I got revenge. The uh, law didn't help me. The lawyers couldn't help me. Taking it in my own hands. Screw you. So why hit him again? Because he would never expect it. Yeah. S U T P was a perfect spot. Yeah. We were All right, one- we'll talk we'll talk about oh, that in the next call. But I keep but
2: keep thinking about it. Those are those are perfect details, but um keep thinking about it.
1: Yeah I, I- Put that fifty thousand dollars and say timing is, is everything in any type of endeavor, especially this. Right. We're twenty four hours too late. What was what was really disheartening, there was about sixty thousand dollars in checks that we couldn't demand. Wow. Mm-hmm. We burnt them. You really them. I was burning them in the fireplace. Yeah, I remember. thought <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know.
2: I don't know. We didn't need that trouble though.
1: Well, I'll tell you, in those days, you could open up a checking account with a false name, you know, but I wasn't going to take the chance.
2: Yeah, with all the cameras and the, it's just, yeah, it's it's like trying to dump a car at the airport right now. It just, you're just
0: you seen Indeed. going in, you're
2: seen going out. Yep.
1: Okay, my friend. All right. Take care, John. Bye.
0: So there's your recap of the Jacob 1 robbery, and I wanted to put that in there because there were so many different revelations for me in that um, Timeline-wise, where, where Dad talks about that first robbery is, is I knew about the robbery. I just didn't know where to put it in the whole timeline. In my brain, I have set in stone that Jacob 1 was our first robbery. And it was for me and Kev, but it wasn't for Dad. And that's that's a big piece. That's a big piece, and that's a big revelation for me. Don't know if it is for you. Um, Now, as we segue into Jacob 2, part of the reason why I wanted to go over Jacob 1 is to play those revelations for you. And number 2 is to show you how much we had evolved. Now, I think with with any situation like this, if you don't learn, if we had kept pulling jobs like the Boston Box Robbery and and kept pulling situations that put us at more risk than reward, um, I don't think we would have made it as far. But I'm not saying that to brag and say that we were great at what we did. I'm just letting you know that here is an example of if you are going to label my dad a mastermind, this is an example of that. If my dad is an evil genius and and my ringtone for my dad is Darth Vader, Darth Vader breathing, um, it's hilarious. And it's not... It's not far from the truth. Now, this particular robbery, Dad takes an opportunity to savor ripping Jacob off. Because Jacob, too, this second robbery, you hope... And part of the reason why he's not a good target, in my mind, is because he's been robbed before you, you would hope that after that he got smarter. And he did. But dad was one step ahead. And dad savors the moment to prove that in this robbery. So we're going to go over. Actually, dad's going to do all of my work for me in the call. I'm just going to go over the particular so that when you hear it in the call, you don't hear anything that confuses you. So I wasn't in this robbery. I wasn't needed. Uh, dad says in the call. Um, but probably more to the to the truth was the fact that I was working at Brookside Hospital. This was the only job that I've ever had. I was in there as an intern. So, part of my schooling required that I do an internship somewhere as a substance abuse counselor. So that was part of the curriculum, so 2 of the days a week you would be an intern at a rehab and then they hired me. They and it they hired me because I did good work. And they hired me for a third shift position, just, you know, at the desk. And they gave me a couple of shifts here and there on the weekends. And I took every, I, this was the first time in my life I had a job that felt like I didn't care. I didn't care about what time I started and what time I finished. I punched in and I wanted to stay. I stayed longer than I was paid to stay. I was invested. I was driven I wanted to learn everything that I could. I was getting positive feedback from all my peers. I mean, this was uh, this was like heroin to me. This was better than any drug I had ever done, and my my sobriety meant a lot to me at this point. It really did. I I wasn't. I didn't want to give it up for anything because I was seeing the other side of being a a, a drug bag. It was the other side of what it was like to not be an addict. To, to start to have a life. Un- Unfortunately, the back of my brain always knew that it was short-lived. I knew they were going to come take it from me. This was also a time that, uh, this was the first time I fell in love. So one of the robberies that Kev came up. He had Susan, because Kev didn't want to travel with weed. He didn't want to fly with it. So instead, um, he made Susan mail one of her friends who lived in New Hampshire uh, a package of stuff and hide weed in it and a pair of socks, just so Kev could say. So he... Asked Susan to commit mail fraud just so he could be high the entire time that he was in New Hampshire because he couldn't, I couldn't get it from him because I was sober and I didn't want to be around it. So Kev had her, had Susan mail it to a friend and I went with Kev to pick it up and I met her friend and I fell in love. Blonde, blue eyes, she had a little girl. um, She lived in a little apartment in Nashville, New Hampshire and I called her the next day. I mean, I is, I was geeked. It was just the first time I had ever fallen in love, and import She's Dawn is important because um, she she goes all the way through um, until I go to prison, so she's going to be an important character in this, um, and she also contributes a little bit to me being arrested the day that they came after me. So again. Real important to keep Dawn in mind, but a lot of stuff was... So much stuff was going on in my life that the idea of doing another robbery made me absolutely ill. I, I was hoping that it would just all end, but I was pretty sure that I was going to stay out of them all. And fortunately, that didn't work out for me, but then um, I didn't do this robbery. So that's where I was, to give you a little bit of background in the timeline... And so dad, Kev, and when dad says I wasn't needed, well, geez, he had to pull Nancy in to watch Ernestine. So yeah, I was needed, which was BS. So uh, I, that's why I say this was more my choice not to be in it than dad saying I wasn't needed. So F him. <laughs> Certainly didn't get a cut, I can tell you that. So the reason dad talks about the reason why he was a, a, a good target. He talks about the setup. And he talks about the setup because we wanted to do this. We we had to contain him because we thought, A, he was going to be a little bit more nervous. And Dad knew. Dad was reading the mind of the potential jewelry salesman post-17 robberies or something. You know, it's we're so deep into robberies now. I don't even know what the count is at this point. And you're going to hear about Hingham. So, Dad is going to go into a conversation in this phone call about the second job that he did by himself. So, in this episode, you're getting the first job that he did without us that was prior to Jacob 1. And then you're going to hear about the Hingham job, which was right around this time that he did alone with Nancy without anybody. Didn't bother bringing Kev up. Didn't ask me to come down. I wasn't needed. And... It's chilling. It's absolutely chilling. And when you hear Dad go through the setup of this robbery, the Hingham robbery, Dad gets chilling. And I'm not talking about the the um, Bill told me this and the store was that and the guy did this and I had diamonds sent in. But when he talks about the three, as soon as he says three fifty seven, my Dad's voice gets chilling. To me, it did. And I I found myself not wanting to ask more questions. But he goes over that, okay? So, then we go into the setup of Jacob 2. Now, Jacob 2, Dad knew Jacob was going to be really, really resistant to falling for this. So, because a description had gone out about us. The National Jewelers article was saying, hey, watch out for anybody saying that they're setting up a store and come on in. And so dad, you're gonna hear him talk about part of the plan and part of the setup was getting the store, paying cash for it. It was above a hair salon and they just paid the the landlord below uh, cash for it, Ernestine. And then they started a dialogue with Jacob saying, hey, we're gonna set up this store, we're open, blah, blah, blah. So, so Ernestine had to be in that store from like eight to five the week or two prior to make to make it look legit, number one. So to do that, you had to put up some merchandise. It couldn't just always look like they were in the process of putting stuff up. Eventually, you had to make it look a, kind of like a jewelry store. So dad will talk about how he took fake jewelry from other robberies and put it in the store and left it there knowing Jacob would come by unannounced to check le- the legitimacy of Ernestine's claim. Because up to that point, they had only discussed stuff on the phone. And you get a guy salivating by saying, hey, um, I'm opening a jewelry store. Um, I want to have you come and bring your whole product line and buy your whole product line. I mean, Jake, that particular job was going to yield Jacob tons of money, especially with the markup. So, and, and you, you always... You always act like a sucker in those situations. So the manipulation here on dad's part in getting somebody, especially in that climate where everybody was paranoid about being robbed and everybody was being warned about being robbed, that this was a job that was too good for Jacob to pass up. And you had to make it like that. That's why you had to include Ernestine in this. And you're going to hear about how dad eventually had to pull Nancy into this because Ernestine was just too geeked out over having to see Jacob uh, and be surprised by Jacob. She was just a very nervous person. But again, women are great in these scenarios because they get somebody like Jacob very comfortable. And, you know, to have dad or Kev call and make these. No, it just it wouldn't happen, and you'd get somebody that would show up with all fake stuff. It w- it just wasn't uh, feasible to do it without them. So the plan goes into effect, almost identical to Burlington. So if you haven't listened to Burlington, go back and listen to that. But this was another situation where Dad needs to find a store to make sure that we have complete control over the situation, mainly because of the intel that Bill had given us about how Jacob was set up now. So Dad's going to go over all of that, but I'm going to preempt that a little bit because there is a great deal of manipulation here on Dad's part during the robbery. So uh, Dad tortures, and I don't mean physically tortures, I mean mentally tortures Jacob a little bit because the whole time, the, the plan is to get him into the store Kev is going to subdue him and tape him to a chair. But you hear Dad say, Oh, but it wasn't tight. What? Is that supposed to provide some solace about how awful it is to tie somebody to a chair? I'm still freaked out about the fact that I did it once. Now, Kev is in that position. Now, I didn't have a conversation with Kev about this. I didn't uh, chat with him about how he felt about taping somebody to a chair. Because, again, I was doing my best to forget that. So... I didn't give it much thought. I didn't hear about this robbery until until prison. So, the normal morality conversations that I would have with Kev here, I, I I didn't. But I I can tell you I can relate. And this is probably one of the only places that Kev and I could see eye to eye, along with all the shit that we went through in prison. But you know, Kev and I do not see eye to eye. So Kev's going to tape him down to a chair and Dad's going to get the loot. Now we know about the diamond holsters Um, under his armpits. Bill tells us that that's where he keeps all of his loose diamonds. So Jacob knows that um, we're after his suitcase because that's what he knew we were after the first robbery. So you'll hear Dad talk about how Jacob after he's taped to the chair, is almost giving up this suitcase very quickly, almost pushing it towards Dad. And Dad is savoring the moment that he's going to get Jacob to think that the suitcase is enough and then go after and cut out with a knife the holsters out of his armpits. So understand... This is a robbery, you want to be in and out in 90 seconds or, or as quickly as possible. There's tons and tons of waiting time prior to the actual execution of this robbery. And Dad is taking extra time to get Jacob to think that we don't know about those shoulder holsters. holsters. So, I have heard Dad describe this robbery as they take the case and they make it seem like they're leaving and dad goes back pats him down and then takes takes the shoulder holster now there's something insidious in that there's something there's something evil genius about that now it it's still there's still a revenge component to this but I mean come on dad got back 10 times and Jacob got back 10 times what we stole from him and claiming the false robbery. And this was going to happen for Jacob again. But then you hear dad talk about and hear him sickly satisfied by the fact that Jacob is now selling trinkets in Israel because we ruined him. So, you know, this is why my dad's ringtone when he calls me is Darth Vader breathing. And this is why I think on that scale, uh, my dad trumps Darth Vader. Totally. Listen listen to him in these calls. It's incredible. So I'm going to play um, the 10-minute call that I have, uh, Jacob 2. And Dad's going to do most of the work for me. And uh, I hope you guys like it. And after that, I'm going to come on and talk about um, my dad and my grandmother. So I have a call from my dad and... and talking about my grandmother, and then I have a call from my grandmother. So you're going to hear an intro to that, and then I'll go into those calls. I got some comedy for you, so a lot of stuff um, still to come in this episode, episode 15. Having a blast doing it for you. I'll be right back. So
2: I have been looking forward to going over this particular one because I wasn't in it. Okay, I do what I was doing. I think I was probably working
1: for Seaborn Hospital, and I was I was. Well maybe we just didn't need you. Possibly. That
2: that hurts my feelings.
1: It shouldn't. <laughs> I want it in or I wanted
2: my cut. <laughs> um uh so Jacob two. Uh I, I I learned some things in the in the last call that we did about Jacob One because I didn't know about the mall thing.
1: The first one I tried. Yeah.
2: And what's yeah. the second one you tried?
1: Jacob. At his house.
2: Okay. So you tried to do that by yourself?
1: No. No. I knew I couldn't. So you had calves? Yeah. And okay, it so wasn't
2: a second one that you did by yourself?
1: Yeah. That was uh, much later. What was that? There's a oh, jewelry. that was
2: uh, New York, wasn't it?
1: No, that was in Hingham, Massachusetts. It was a jewelry right. store there. Okay. And I did the whole thing. Uh, Billy told me that uh, the father had retired and to go in there and say I had bought a diamond previously uh, was, was the owner and his son came out and says, well, he retired. I'm running the show now. So I says, well, I'm looking for a particular diamond. And I went through the whole ha. and I had him bring in a half a dozen stones. So, so. Just back up a little bit because give give me what you knew about the store from Billy. Number one, uh, I knew Billy uh, used that setup that I had done business with the father. So that made the guy feel a little nicer, I guess. Uh, And we knew that all his cameras were phony. Okay. And uh, he didn't have much in the way of uh, showing me anything. So I requested one, one quarter carrots, certain uh, specs on them, certain clarity.
2: Which you knew he had from Billy.
1: No, I knew he was going to get them from Boston. All right. So he brought in a half a dozen stones. Now the whole thing was uh, was Nancy was with me. We drove up to the store, and I had that 357. I put it into her purse, and I says, look, I'm going to come in and pretend that I got a bad cold, and I'm going to say, do you have any tissues? And you're going to say, "Yeah, they're in in the purse." That's when I went in, pulled the gun out, stuck it in his face, and she scooped up the half dozen stones. I stood there until she went out and started the car. I walked out calmly, told him to call the police, got in the car, we drove off. <laughs> My God, did
2: you ever talk to Nancy again? Post all of this?
1: Oh no, no, no. Would I, you I, ever? I talked to her a couple of times when I was in. Uh, Shirley. And that was it. I I decided there was no reason to keep talking to her. She was leaving for North Carolina. The mother had died. And the father uh, over the years had accumulated an awful lot of stock. And uh, she left most of that to Nancy. So she's pretty independent.
2: Okay. Well, when when this becomes a docuseries, they're going to find her. I don't give a damn. I know, but a, a, it would be interesting to hear what she has to say, and B, I don't give a damn either, because she gave me up. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gone away.
1: Yeah, that's very true. You know? I, about,
2: it I made it through that Littleton lineup. Holy shit, That That took years off my life. I bet. Um, and he picked out a cop. <laughs> it was awesome. It was pretty oh, freaking awesome. But I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wait for that story because that's a whole story, a whole episode in and of itself. But um, it's oh, so yeah, Jacob, that's funny. Jacob two, um, let's go. Like, how did he get on the radar again?
1: Billy suggested that we pay another visit to him because he was such a shitbag, and he would never <laughs> expect it. Now he had a good customer in Chicopee, right down the street from where we rented that store. So, talk about how you
2: rented the store. How'd you find that store?
1: Uh, We went out there and uh, just went through the paper. And there was a store for rent on that. It was above a beauty parlor. And uh, Ernestine went in and said she was interested. She wanted to start a little business, retail. And she rented the store, gave him a month's rent. Cash? Um, Cash. No ID. Um, No ID. And. I was smart enough to figure that, you know, Jacob might have been a little bit more paranoid at that point. So we set it up. We set a table up. And I had a whole bunch of silver jewelry spread on the table, knowing that Jacob would probably come by to check the place out before he made the appointment.
2: So was it that bag of silver that we got from? One yeah, of the... something like
1: that, all kinds of shit. Yeah. And uh, uh, I remember uh after the whole thing was over, he says, geez, I, I checked them out. I looked in the window, and there was jewelry on the table. I figured the guys were legit. <laughs> so he
2: actually did check the place out like yep. you had, had
1: surmised. Nice. Yes. Good thinking, man. And uh, now he came one late afternoon, and Ernestine absolutely freaked. So I calmed her down just for a second. I says, look, tell him you're Son, just got into an automobile accident. You have to go home. And she did that beautifully. So then I asked Nancy, I said, You got to come in here and just keep an eye on Ernestine. so she get involved? So he came the second time. He came up the stairs, came in, sat down, and Kevin and I went out, did our thing, and he kept pushing the briefcase to me. But Billy had announced that he keeps all his diamonds in shoulder holster bags. So I uh, took a knife, and I cut the bags off of them and stuck them in my pocket, and we left. And what was in there? Loose diamonds.
2: Did you tie them to a chair like Rob,
1: Bob? Yeah. yeah, we did, but I did very loose. Oh, we and you left them there. Man. Yeah, I left them there. We, we had parked uh, probably a football field's length away. He didn't see the car, so we uh, just got in the car and drove. And did you go away for that? No okay
2: um, and what was the take do you think
1: total oh, I don't know well we paid Ernestine I think we paid her four or six grand and I took care of Kevin because Kevin had a you know, he was living out in Florida at the time right and put my, I put about 10 15 grand away don't so it, was, the it was a decent yeah that's what you grabbed to pay for the lawyer remember right right
2: Jeff grabbed man
1: like a but, ninja that
2: I I sent her with instructions to go in that house, right? And she was probably 10 minutes away where I was living with Dawn at the time. I sent her into that house, told her where the combination was. Cops were probably sitting outside because they had been in there three separate times with warrants and couldn't find that safe. is that unbelievable?
1: That's why I put it where it was.
2: (laughs) I I mean, it's brilliant. I did a whole episode on it. I called it the Burlington job and the two safes.
0: I remember yep. that whole
2: day, I remember you woke me up, Kev was passed out, we were partying our brains out and You had already drilled the hole and dug it all out and yep. I was hungover and you were I, I always expected to see some burrowing creature come out with a <laughs> mouthful of diamonds one day And be like, oh my god, <laughs> the only squirrels in the neighborhood there are wearing crowns <laughs> um, But no, they, they could never find it So I sent Jess in there and it's, you know 10-minute drive there, 10-minute drive back. So I figured she'd be in there 10 minutes, about 30 minutes. She was back in like 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. She, she must have learned so much from Brandon because Brandon would go into Dunkin' Donuts at really? night. He would wait for – he would case it, find out their busiest days, find out when they would probably have the most cash. He would go up the telephone pole and cut the alarm wire so he had all time in the world. And he would go in there and he would crack the safe.
1: Wow. Yeah.
2: Brilliant at that stuff, you know. if that I mean,
1: if
2: yeah, ever I put just, that brain to good use, you
1: could do good things. I figured out one time that if you had a six-foot-long, I call a pinch bar, and got just under the lip of the uh, the cover, you could have popped that if there was a couple of guys, because there was there was enough if you, enough leverage. I think you could have bent a metal that those bolts shoot into when they're locked. I think. You mean the safe? The safe, yeah. The, the downstairs room. one? Yeah.
2: Yeah. You it think it cool. could have been popped open
1: pretty easy? No, not easy, but it could have been done.
2: Yeah. Well, that's why I didn't you, you drilled the upstairs safe into the ground, didn't you? Cause okay. I, I mean, I watched um, – you watch Storage Wars. When they find one of those safes, they pick it up over their head, they drop it, it pops open like a cashew, like a, well, like you, a, I, cashew use a
1: bigger, I use a medium-sized screwdriver and popped it open. <laughs> That's
2: unbelievable. What good is that guy
1: then? Guy is going to be centric. Yeah,
2: unbelievable.
1: All right, so that was Jacob too. Yeah. That's right. where he decided to sell trinkets and uh, souvenirs in Israel.
2: And uh, where did so most of that was in the safe after you were arrested? Uh, I think we got rid of a lot of this stuff
1: yeah there was
2: cash in there and yeah. there was some loose stuff there were a couple of rings in there yeah. I, I have to, I'm have going to have to sit down and really think about what was in that safe when just got well, home I, there was a lot of rings
1: which I held but, back
0: from uh, the cake yeah. so I'm about to play two conversations with you one that I had with my dad about my grandmother and one that I actually had with my grandmother now I have three videos on my phone of me having a conversation with my grandmother later in her life. And all are examples of how I dealt with her dementia. Now, my father and brother had a very um, typical way, I think, of dealing with her dementia in that when she asked the same question 8,000 times, you know, over a 24-hour period, that starts to get more and more frustrating and the answers start getting more and more quick and, and your response starts to get more and more pat in that you're trying to correct a computer that cannot process the information that you're giving it or store it. So the answer that you give her falls out of her brain the second she hears it and she's asking the question again because the brain wasn't satisfied. So when you get in that cycle with with that type of brain you're never ever gonna win that you can't reteach it and that's one of the things about this disease that tends to baffle is why can't they can't learn anymore their their short-term memory gone done they cannot or is that long term always got those confused that being said what you're going to hear is my attempt to engage her differently Meaning, I'm, I want to hear the nonsense. Tell me all about the nonsense. And when I changed the subject, and and almost try to go into her world, she talked more. There was less anxiety. She got less excited because when that when she didn't get the answer that she wanted, or that she could store in her brain that didn't ask cause her to ask the question again. There was a lot of frustration around that for her because she's hearing your frustration and being like, wait, wait, I just asked you a question. Why are you screaming at me? Well, you just asked that two seconds ago. I did? Yeah. And you're getting madder because you're just doing this over and over again. But again, you have a logical brain. There's a shot. So this is a four-minute conversation that I have with her. And I just also wanted to show an example of how concerned she was for Kev. I'm going to share with you that in my therapy with bob bob had a very simple way of bringing things down into a simple sentence that made things super clear when you came across that behavior in your life i'll give you an example one of the things that he would constantly ask me to think about was if i were having tension with somebody in my family If I had a bad relationship with somebody in my family and I brought that to therapy, he would continually say, tell me what you would do if a stranger treated you the way your brother treated you. Okay, Uh, I wouldn't put up with it. That right there is a very quick way to get to a belief that I had about how loyal I'm supposed to be to people I shared DNA with. So I hope that makes sense because this is key in most therapy, I believe, in getting to the core of why you act the way you act and the way that I act. So that was something that Bob really tried to drive home with me was that um, if you thought more about that, about basing the people you surround yourself with on how they treat you, not the fact that you share DNA or share a length of time together. Cause a lot of people be like, oh, we've been th- friends for 30 years and, and that's what they base the loyalty to that person on. I'm just saying that's not a bad thing. It's just always helpful to measure that against how that relationship makes you feel. Now, When I went through that therapy, I stopped talking to my family. My dad was locked up. My brother was locked up. My grandmother wanted me to uh, bring her to visit my dad and brother every single week and sit there through the entire chunk of the first phase of visiting. And you could sit there for nine hours with somebody if you wanted to on weekends. So they didn't limit the amount of time. I mean, you could, you could be there the entire visiting day if you wanted to, and there were breaks for count, which basically meant that nobody could get up in the, in the um, visiting room. But if you wanted to go home before the first count, you ended up sitting there for about three hours. And that's what we would do, because she would want to get a bunch of stuff for the vending machine so Kevin could eat, and Dad could have something, and they sat and talked about nothing. It was so boring, and it stressed me out, and it gave me migraines going back to the prison that I had just left. So for my own mental health, I cut it out, man. I stopped talking to him, and I stopped talking to Bun, and, and I, I, yeah, I definitely regret that that's time that I couldn't spend with her later in life, but it was... Bun was a tough relationship. You didn't get very deep with her. You couldn't have deep conversations like I'm having right now with my dad. And you couldn't have conversations like this with my dad back then either. So there was a very stark difference between the dad that you hear in these conversations and the dad I grew up with in that he's very free with information about, you know, what it was like growing up next to that mob bar and what he thought about this stuff and... He's he's much more open than he was. Now we talk about what it was like for Bun to live in a world that was changing so rapidly. She reached, you know, she was over 50 once. You know, internet didn't come out until she was 80, or maybe even older. And and you're you're going to hear about how the first computer I had, she thought, broke her TV. Um, so it's a cute conversation. Um, but keep in mind that you know the way i talk to her is is the way that i chose to to help myself and help me help her while she had this so enjoy these conversations i'm going to come back after you hear both of them and we'll talk about uh the comedy that you're about to hear i'm super excited to present that to you so uh i'll be right back okay got a little system workout. though.
1: Well, I do a lot of the shopping because Kevin goes in and out like a ninja. I like to look around, maybe some stuff on sale, et cetera, et cetera. You know?
2: Yeah, you go tough from Bun.
1: Well, I used to take Bun shopping a lot, and uh, <laughs> I learned. I so you saw those
2: videos I sent you of her? Yes, I thank um, you so much for that. No, and I, I'm going to put them. I can put audio into the podcast, and it's just—I mean, people, people love it. Mm-hmm. No, she's up. I I haven't put her up yet. I have like a four-minute conversation I had with her. And too bad it's all, you know, fun with dementia because, boy, would she make a fun character on this thing.
1: Oh, my God, you're right. I mean, some of the <laughs> things yeah, she could have told about the old days.
2: Yeah. Uh,
1: 16 was, wow, that was a 1,000 years ago by all the technology changes, all the societal changes.
2: Uh, right. I mean, she, we bought her a microwave and she didn't touch the thing for five years.
1: Well, she was a little afraid till I show her. All you do is turn the dial. And then she I, was m- <laughs> I remember
2: I was upstairs while I was going to college and I had, you know, I bought one of the very first versions of a home computer and she had your old, uh, it was the first, remember that thing from Groton, the TV where it was touch the buttons and change yeah. the channel. She had that TV, which had to be thirty years old, and the tube. Oh my God! The tube blew out on it one night, and she comes to the bottom of the stairs and she goes, "Brian, what are you doing on that goddamn computer?" She thought my computer. (laughs) She thought my computer
1: smoked out her TV. (laughs) Oh Jesus! That's funny. I never heard that story.
2: Yeah, it was hilarious. I'm like, my computer can't do that to your TV. We'll we'll bring it in and we'll have it fixed. And it was hilarious.
1: I didn't didn't think they could fix those. That was two-part semiconductors.
2: Yeah, I'm sure we couldn't. And she ended up watching the little TV that I, I had from prison.
1: What was funny is when I bought that TV, each button was next to a full tuner that tuned over the complete range. That had to be very expensive. Because there was something like, what, a dozen of those? Must every have been a pot, yeah. A full tuner. I, I, it boggled my mind why they would do it that way. It
2: was 1970 something. What choice did they have?
1: Uh, that was the only TV that had the push button, Brian, so there were alternatives.
2: Right. We thought it was the coolest thing in the world until we walked across a carpet and, brought it and got zapped by it every time we <laughs> wanted to change the channel, man. It was like you got a good 30 amps in that thing.
1: Well, that's what happens when – I sell static electricity, but it does hurt. Yeah. Trust me, I know.
2: Cool. Um, I'll let you go. I'm done. I'm going to head into work myself. Um, I am doing up other versions of the shirt, but um, it's going to be with the two hands and the diamonds.
1: Okay.
2: Whatever you want to do it. And then uh, maybe I'll send you one of those. I'll order an XL on that. It's
1: a
0: gray
2: one. It looks really good, so – and then I'll give you a buzz later in the week for Jacob, too.
3: With my cabin? Upstairs. 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 I don't know what can I get for him. You're a man. And you could give me a little bit of advice.
0: I don't think he wants anything. He doesn't. No.
3: I wonder why. Is he mad or something? Nope, no. he's sleeping. Oh, it's sleeping. Well, this is the one that you could take a little extra. It's cold and warm in places. Maybe you get into that warm place. How have you been and your family? Good. Wonderful to see
0: that. I like your hairdo. What? I like your hairdo. You do. Yeah.
3: Oh, thank you.
0: Do you do it yourself? No. Who does it?
3: In Ch- uh, Chelsea is uh, Joanne.
0: Joanne does it.
3: Yeah. And it's reasonable. It's uh, she's been on it for years. Yeah. And so and she's reasonable. My and when husband, you
0: when you go in, do you ask for that style, or does she pick?
3: No, she, you tell her. You tell her
0: what what you want your hair to look like. Yeah. And that's what you asked her to do.
3: Uh, and you, uh, they'll do it for you. Right and uh, then uh, if you like it you come back to them okay. and they uh, set it for you and they quench some a little bit uh, of uh, looks like a flower and to last uh, not to, to you go over the bed and there's your, right. they, and that is kind of hard. So uh, you
0: asked, you went, you went in there and you asked to look like a 90 year old Backstreet Boy? Well, are you
3: going to, to ask anything. Oh, thank you. They'll ask you, how did you want your hair oh. set? And what do you tell them? And you know, I say, I want those big, Stickers in my hair. Stickers. It's, well, uh, and curlers, you mean? But they uh, wet that with some lotion. in My hair. Yeah. After they washed it, and it comes out dry. Then they give you, if you want a, a job on your head curled. Or flat, or anything.
0: And you like it flat or
3: curled? I I, I like a curl in my hair,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and it makes it shorter.
0: Like a mad scientist. Yeah, yeah. So it's Like an evil scientist. Uh,
3: that place you have to find on Second Street anywhere. there's on Second. That's Street. where they do the crazy haircuts. I don't tell them crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they're nice. I used to go to them. I forgot that was the, what the name. Was.
0: So that was my grandmother. I hope you enjoyed that. It's about four minutes of my grandmother. I call it Bun Unplugged. And before that was my dad talking about... um my grandmother after I sent him this video and another one so that is the woman that created my dad so you just get a sense of what it was like to talk to her now you're hearing the very advanced stages of her dementia in our conversation but you're also hearing what a typical conversation with my grandmother would be like Uh, the best way that I can describe my grandmother growing up as a kid was out of touch And again, I don't know if the technological advances that you heard my father and I talking about, if that came on so quickly for my grandmother that she just had such a difficult time adjusting. She lost two husbands. She lost my dad's father and then her second husband. She lost all of her family. All of her sisters died of some form of cancer. I think one died of cirrhosis. Um, one died of pancreatic cancer, she watched them all die to the point that she was the only one left. So psychologically, I don't know what that does to somebody, but she was just not up to you know she wasn't with it. I, I guess a very typical old person. So what you're hearing isn't necessarily the advanced staged dementia. What you're hearing is what a typical conversation would be with my grandmother. It was very surface. A lot like it is with my dad. The dad you're hearing in these calls is a different dad. And he's talking more about the kind of stuff that I would have hoped to walk out of childhood with. You know, a better sense of who I was as a Russian. And who, you know, like I said, I got a lot of the culture, Polish-wise, from my mother's side. You know, very rooted in in their Polish heritage. And we ate a lot of the Polish foods, but you... Another surprise coming up in the call that I have for you is that my dad talks about how his parents were Polish and Russian. And I always thought that my father's side was Russian, my mother's side was Polish. But that is not true. My father's side had a Russian mother and a Polish father. So Stanley, my dad's dad, was Polish and you, you hear us talking about that, that's a revelation for me. I, again, maybe I never asked the right questions, maybe it was never put into context, maybe I was never able to put it into context, but that's a, that's a, something I hadn't known before. Now, again, I have to raise a red flag here, the Russian and Polish people, to have two people that are raising families from those two backgrounds. If we were to to go back and do the genealogy, man, that was a, a relationship and a combination that did not start well. It did not start, you know, from two happy neighbors living next to each other. The Russians were occupiers. So it's it I, again, there's there's just something in that past that I think develops the personality and and eventually contributes to something stereotypical later on. Now um, the call that I'm about to play you is dad talking about some of Bun's extended family and talks about the two aunts that she lost. Um, one of them was a big time drinker. Um, and then I'm going to just play some comedy. So, the end of the conversation that I have with my dad coming up now, uh, we talk about comedy because I sent him, um, this comedy video so the comedy video you're about to hear some of the jokes overlap that you heard from the other comedy video but they are different and there is definitely more material in here but this is a comedy video that i sent to him and that we're talking about and then we eventually go into a conversation about um about how why i sound so comfortable on stage so um won't have to spoil that for you but again me doing comedy has always been an avenue of ultimate acceptance for me of the story and talking to and going to high schools and talking to kids about addictions and and telling my story in that venue has always been something that made me feel like this story was useful and that's the ultimate goal here is to find the place that this story could help people. You know, is there a way to use this as a tool? So any notoriety that that came or comes from this, I hope will fuel and funnel down to a form of this that only helps kids. Because there's just too many kids out there that are struggling and it's there's just not enough help. They're just not, and it's too overwhelming for too many people out there right now. When I used to go to uh, Lexington High School, the teachers there were oh, so amazing because they were just so grateful to have me there. They were just so great. They Then they dug up some money to have, me, to have me come because I used to have to take time off because I'd have to talk to so many different classes, but it was just a, a great experience, and it is what I would love to do again. Talk to schools during the day, do comedy at night. Uh, sell this to Mark Wahlberg or, <laughs> or Ben Affleck if, if he's still out there. I don't know. But so you're gonna hear me do some some that comedy set that was done at Mad Robot um, down here in Florida, A great venue that closed down because of COVID. But hope you guys enjoy that. And uh, I will pop back on to close things out. Here you go, guys. Five
1: cents numbers. You win 100 bucks. I was so rampant in Chelsea. Really? And my aunt that lived downstairs, Sabina, used to send me to this little candy store. I never sold candy and I'd give him a little piece of paper and a quarter. and she'd give, me, she'd give me a receipt and I'd bring it back to my aunt. She used to play the numbers. <laughs> Auntie Ollie? No, uh, Sabina. That okay. was sister. My father's sister, my aunt. She lived yeah. downstairs from book. I couldn't pick
2: her out in the lineup. I just know fat. You did
1: I could Yeah.
2: Ollie, yeah. maybe, because she looked a little like Bun, but
1: no. That was uh, Bun's favorite sister. Oh, yeah. my My cousin downstairs got in trouble with a couple of mobsters once. They, for some reason, were in Hella's Bar, came out drunk, and don't ask me why, but they bent his license plate on his car, and he came running out of the house, saw who, <laughs> who they were. Went back in the house. Yeah, smart man. Smart like man. Like I told you, all the Lincolns, every Saturday night, caddies, Lincolns, right in Hell's Bar. Yeah. And then the I mentioned that.
2: I was on a comedy show and backstage. I mentioned Hell's Bar, and everybody knew it.
1: Yeah. Very famous. It a the, famous bar. The uh, Black Mass. Yeah. Uh, Whitey Balls used to hang out there. Oh. They used to do a little business, as I mentioned. Right under, under the Tobin,
2: man. Right under okay. the Tobin.
1: Yep. That's where uh, you, you see trailers pull in, truckloads of stolen goods. Trailer. I don't
2: remember that back. I remember that back parking lot. I just don't remember being it as big to hold a trailer. It didn't have to hold it long.
1: Cause it yeah, I'm sure.
2: Because you, your, the back of your house had those three porches, and I remember you had a very small backyard. Uh, I'm, I'm a, a
1: existent. Right, right, right. And, but wow! The, I can almost
2: smell it there.
1: Yeah.
2: Hey. I could smell the inside when you open that front door to get up to <laughs> that middle apartment. I can smell it. I can hear the yeah, shoes on the say. stairs.
1: But remember, that was one house, Brian. I it, know. And but you did. Bun own the whole thing, or you guys rented? No, we owned the whole thing. When my uh, grandmother died, my Bupji, uh dad, and Bun made an offer to the family to buy the house for
2: $4,000. Why would you call her Bupci?
1: That was a Polish grandmother. Right, you, were, you were Russian. Well, I had a Russian and a Polish grandmother. Oh, so your dad was Polish? Yeah, so okay. Beluskin. And Wallach is the Russian side, which is a bastardization of Volkov, which is the Russian pronunciation. Yeah, you don't want to
2: walk around in the United States anytime after 1945
1: and say <laughs> Volkov. No, not, Yeah, you start pronouncing those W's, now. That Hurt Street area was a little Russian neighborhood, like Little Odessa. Yeah, I remember that. Russian church. Uh, they had Russian uh, schools, little schools and private homes teach you the Russian language and history. A very sad uh, civilization, actually, between the oh, dollar and the cognizant.
2: The, 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 bro- the, the poor people's backs were broken by the yep. rich, broken. Historians will tell you no other ethnicity or or people in history Have broken the backs of their poor people more than I mean uh, worse than slavery Yeah I just saw the cutest meme today Of uh, a really 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 fat obese lion Sitting next to the ark saying The cruise wasn't that good but the food was excellent
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is that outstanding?
2: Yes it's very well done I gotta head to work, so uh, okay. We um, will chat soon. I'm um, I can I can do a version of that shirt that is a just the hands, you know, just the cover of the book.
1: I just like the gun.
2: Yeah, I like I like the whole logo, so I yeah. I will do a logo version of that, maybe without the uh without the words underneath.
1: Yeah, what's it cost to do something like that?
2: like 30 bucks to get the good t-shirt like that's a good champion shirt so so it'll shrink up a little bit but it's still nice and soft it's a little i usually go for the 100 percent cotton because the blends you have no idea they'll 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 either stink two days in or they're just they're just unpredictable
1: so unless i can get a lulu quality type of shirt like that i won't go for a blend quick question how is the hotel and the farmer's table go jamming Really? Uh, they,
2: okay. uh, yeah, jamming. It's been jamming. It hasn't really stopped, man. It's
1: it.
2: it someday I want to know what that feels like to to walk through a business that you created and have it packed and just. This is going to be a great feeling. Uh, I don't know that I'll ever feel that, but hopefully someday. It's like it's like comedy, you know, when you get off stage and the people clap and they were laughing the whole time. The feeling that you have after that must be similar, with a
1: huge check. Well, I noticed you had <laughs> that audience pretty on the palm of your hand. The, the I, I try. I think. I think
2: that is basically one of the things that you hope to have as a comedian. Now, my buddy Brian in in Nantucket, he's he's built like a longshoreman. He's built like Kev, just not you know not as jacked. But at the same time, he'd get on stage and the people would sit back. <laughs> They'd be like, so so it's up. You have to get on, on up to that mic and and let them know it's okay that you're not gonna kill them yeah. or eat them. And as soon as you do that, though, they'll be like, okay, he's not going to kill us. Let's laugh at him now. But there are some people that, like, if Kev got on stage, people would be like, okay, everybody take off your jewelry and listen to everything this man says because we're going to do whatever he tells us to do. And it would be up to Kev to, to, to break that, you know? And, and sometimes that's why I get up and I make a joke like, I think I was born gay, blah, 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 because the audience automatically is like, oh, my God, yeah, he looks gay. So you want to point out the shit that people are thinking already.
1: You got uh, you got some pretty good instincts.
2: You know, I've been getting up, I've been getting up in front of kids telling our story, Dad, in high schools. I went to sixteen my first year, and I went to Lexington yeah, High School for like five straight years. So I've been in front of kids. <laughs> my last time I was at the high school I was in front of fifteen hundred kids who all oh asked me God. questions afterwards, and they're brutal. They're not, they're never mean. They're just they they can see you're full of shit as soon as they look at you, which is why they like me because I'm not. I, I just got up, and I was honest with them. And so being on stage in front of adults, way easier after you did it for five years in front of kids.
1: Interesting point. Oh. I remember speaking at what uh and then after the first couple of seconds, I just, just slid right into it. I used to love doing it. Yeah, and that, that, that's the... I've been that way ever since. So when when
2: I was in speech class in school, and people were like, "Oh my God, I'm so afraid." I'm like, "What is the, what is wrong with you? This is awesome." So I've always yeah, been an at attention Billy, or
1: Mostly, Billy. Uh, so I as I said, some of your podcasts, and he still keeps going back that um, he's looking <laughs> into the county and solving the uh, technical problem. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's, that's going to be in
2: my one man show at some point
1: because I I mean, that that's the type of thing that just sets up a mindset, right? I wonder what would happen if some of my coworkers heard that story. <laughs> like, right? So like, Jesus, we thought this kid was really sharp. <laughs> <laughs> now
2: there's got to be one or two of them on the staff that was like, I can't wait for that day that they come down and it's not working because they thought they would get bumped up.
1: Well, it was amazing. Those two engineers couldn't wait to hand off that test set to me.
2: Couldn't wait. Sure. Sure. Right? Those are the two guys that are eyeing and salivating <laughs> over your job.
1: Well, they and were. How was... pissed
2: were they afterwards, man?
1: Well, they were a master's degree engineers, so they were way above me. Uh, but like I said, they just could not solve the problem. No one could. It was crazy. Go to work. Talk to you I'll soon. talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Amen is awesome, right? I'm just going to retell her set. Um, okay, so dogs are racist.
0: So, um, I think that I was born gay, but that men treated me like shit my whole life, that it turned me hetero. <laughs> That's really tough to tell your dad, man, because, you know, he was really disappointed. Um, I was actually, I'm going to turn 50 next week, and I was thinking of doing the second half of my life gay, but I don't even like my own penis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not entirely sure how adding another one is going to fix that problem. <laughs> That's like having a rabid bull and adding another rabid bull to the room. That's not going to work out right. But um, I've had, I think people think that I'm gay because I'm different. And, and I've had a very different life than most people. Um, I think my dad raised my brother and I to be criminals because I knew my Miranda rights before I knew any nursery rhymes. <laughs> When they asked me to pledge allegiance in school, I said, I oh, ain't pledging shit till my lawyer gets here. Oh, I used to steal other kids' toys and then help them look for them. When, when, when I was in Sunday school, they read the text of to me, and I was like, whatever? ever? Thou shalt not ever? I could only ever do seven of the Ten Commandments my entire life. That is a C minus lifetime average for sin. There's no way I'm getting into heaven unless there's a heaven admission scandal, and I can pay my way in. But I, but I, I, it shouldn't surprise anybody that I did prison time. Actually, it's a weird story. My father, my brother, and I robbed jewelry stores all over New England for five years. I was laughing. It's just, it's just, What do you do with your family? I don't know. (laughs) What do you guys (laughs) do? So so we did about 30 stores in all. And if you've never planned an armed robbery with your family, guys, I highly recommend it. (laughs) Because you will get the job based on your level of importance to the family. Let me give you an example. My dad went to Wentworth School of Technology. He's a certified genius. He was the mastermind. He planned everything. My brother is 250 pounds, 6'4". He was the muscle. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm 5'9". I'm 150 pounds. I'm the look <laughs> Because apparently, the only thing they trusted me with is this. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm laying in my bed the night before the robbery thinking, how much looking out is creepy. Like, ready? Like, that's creepy. We're getting busted. So we all did get busted, and we all did prison time. My dad did 12 years, my brother did 10, and I did three. Because I was the lookout. <laughs> Even the judge knew it was a lame job. The jury sentenced me to five years, the judge brought it down to three. He was like, oh shit, I was gonna let him go. <laughs> I said to him, oh, shit, I had three years, but I gotta tell you. It's it's really, really messed up, man. When you know you're going to prison, it's just my brain just shut down. And my brain said, listen, you only have two jobs. Don't get raped, don't get stabbed. That's all you gotta do. Don't get raped, don't get stabbed. And I can say confidently, in hindsight, after three years in prison, I didn't get stabbed. No, man, it's really hard to to stab somebody in prison, man. It's not easy. This is what I gotta do to stab you in prison. I gotta find a piece of plastic and I gotta find a lighter. Those two things are not easy to find in prison. I gotta take that lighter, I gotta melt that plastic down into a cylinder. I gotta pee on the floor so the acid in my pee will will grind that piece of plastic down to a fine point. I gotta make a handle for the shank so that when I try to stab you I don't impale my own hand. I have to take that shank, handle first, stick it up my ass so I can walk out to the yard, pull it out somewhere go up to you and stab you. I'm gonna go through all that trouble, you fucked up. (laughs) Nobody in prison falls after being stabbed and is like, What did I do? (laughs) I'm gonna leave you with this. Because you look very afraid. (laughs) She covered up her wedding ring when I got on stage (laughs) last night. So. And that was episode fifteen, ladies and gentlemen, Jacob Two. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate uh, all of the fans that have been uh, listening to the podcast. Some people have surprised me as of late in how much of the podcast that they have listened to. A couple of people have told me that they've passed on the podcast to other people. So hopefully, every episode we get one step closer to to getting this story somehow in some medium that uh that increases its popularity and we can really start to to have some fun with this so thank you so much for listening guys Uh, i'm not entirely sure whether or not we're closer to figuring out whether or not crime does pay but i did have a lot of fun doing this episode every episode that i have done up to this point i look back on uh very favorably and i like that so Thank you for this opportunity to create this for you. Um, And stay tuned. We got a lot more stuff coming up. Uh, I'm going to have a couple of season enders that are really, really great. And uh, we will talk to you very, very soon. Take care of yourself and take care of each other.